and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. It's not surprising to see community build around food. We all have to eat, so food's an easy lure. Eating also engages most of the senses, creating more vivid memories and stronger connections. Through the meal of communion, God creates strong community both with us and among each other. Lead teacher Randy Pope continues the series Traveling in Packs, Finding Community in Your Personal Life with this message entitled Community and Communion, which covers 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 12 through 31. Thank you for joining us today. Our Father in heaven, we're going to ask you now as we complete this series that you would not just draw near to us as we certainly pray every single week, but Lord, cause us to draw near to you through truth. May we embrace the truth and may it truly set us free. I pray for this people here, known as Perimeter and the many guests, would you give to us a real tasting of biblical community and would you protect us and comfort us and assist us through our lifetime because of those relationships. Bless now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For the past two weeks, we've been exploring the idea of finding what we're calling biblical community. It's a, um, it's a series that's uh, entitled Traveling in Packs. Traveling in Packs. Week one, we talked about the essence of biblical community. What is biblical community? How do you know when you found it? To do that, we talked, first of all, of, uh, of that, the actions that you find, the activities, you might call them, that are found in Scripture as biblical community is described in the early church in Acts chapter 2. We looked at that at length. We saw comprised of four activities, at least these four, a devotion to the apostles' teaching, which would be the same for us today as, as the Word of God, fellowship, the word koinonia, fellowship. Breaking of bread, meaning the Lord's table, and then prayer. Then we talked about uh, three evidences. How do you know when you found this thing called biblical community? Well, the scriptures go on to say, here was what's true of the early church. They were taking care of one another. Number two, they were socializing with one another. Many of us think that's what fellowship is, simply socializing. It is more. It includes taking care of and attracting those outside the faith. When you find those three coming together in one spot, know that you are in an environment. You're in an environment for creating friendships that can truly bring you the fellowship and you can offer the fellowship, which literally means sharing or communion. It will give you those opportunities. Now, after that, we talked about, uh, last week, we talked about the benefits of biblical community. And we said they're threefold. The three different benefits, the assistance of others, the comfort of others, and the protection of others. And we're talking here, assistance, comfort, and protection in arenas of the physical life and needs that we have. Uh, We're talking about emotional needs. We're talking about spiritual and moral needs. We need assistance, comfort, and certainly protection. Well, the community that we're talking about does not take place outside of sharing common 
spiritual beliefs and values. Very important to know. Now, we can have a, a form of community with people outside the believing community. We can share beliefs about sports and beliefs about, you know, uh, government, uh, whatever it may be. And we can find commonality and enjoyment and pleasure and so forth. But if you want to find biblical community, you're going to have to find people that you share the same beliefs and the same values. We always say, don't dare just cover yourself with only those people. Uh, For those that don't share our beliefs and values, be a friend, be serving and caring and relating to, obviously. But in addition to that, you've got to have some, a few, that are going to be very special, significant friends. And those people need to share your spiritual values and your beliefs. Now, I said this the last two weeks. I'll now say it one last time. Uh, The church cannot necessarily give you what you're looking for. This is the way I put it in a statement. The church cannot give you biblical community. It can only put you in environments where biblical community can be pursued. Somebody came up to me this last week and said, that statement alone right there, boy, that was, a, that was an aha to me. I never thought of it that way. I thought you go to church and you attend and you got it. No, no, no. It gives you environments where those kind of relationships can be born, but it takes a lot of work and a lot of effort. So we've been talking about three kinds of friends. We all need many, what we will call just you know, supportive friends, Uh, but then we need a few, what we're calling significant friends, and that's where we're digging in in this series. How do you find significant friendships? And we've said, you're not going to find the kind we're talking about in biblical community without all relating in a common way to one and the one and only what we call supernatural friend. Very important to keep those three in mind. Last week when we finished, time I knew would not permit me to hit a little piece that was left from last week. We talked about the benefits, but you know what we didn't do? We didn't talk about the cost of biblical community. Anything that's really worthwhile has a cost, does it not? Sure it does. You want to be in good health? Uh, Well, you got to pay the cost of not eating certain foods you would otherwise enjoy. It means Uh, the discomfort of exercise that otherwise you would never do except you want something and you have to pay the cost. All good health. The same is true in biblical community. It is the very same thing. So I'd like to take just a minute. Then we're going to come to the table and talk about community and communion. But these few thoughts here, I'm going to put it through a thesis statement. This might be the best way I can summarize what I want to say. One, Here it is. An authentic community is willing to experience the discomfort and pain required to avoid pseudo-community. Very interesting. Discomfort and pain. In what respect? In the respect that there's going to be competition to authentic relationships and that's going to be peaceful relationships. There are many of us, for the sake of peaceful relationships, never get into depth of biblical community or what we might call authentic relationships. 
We know that the price to be paid there is truthfulness, and to tell the truth is sometimes very, very painful. And it's not so much that it's painful to us, and maybe it is to see our friends in pain, but, but it's knowing that they're not going to want the pain, and for me to be truthful is going to be maybe damaging to them. And in the name of peaceful relationships, many of us never find authentic relationships. I like the way Bill Hybels puts it in his book, Honest to God. He says, when people submerge their true feelings in order to preserve harmony, they undermine the integrity of a relationship. They buy peace on the surface, but underneath there are hurt feelings, troubling questions, and hidden hostilities just waiting to erupt. It's a costly price to pay for a cheap peace, and it mentally leads to inauthentic relationships. And that it does. Scott Peck talks about the same type of thing in his book, Different Drums. goes like this. He says, the only antidote to pseudo-community is chaos, where hurts are uncovered and hostilities are revealed. You know, we tend to think that, that you know, it just, I cannot afford to tell the truth. I just can't afford to do it. The reality is we can't afford not to tell the truth. One other little statement that comes out of his book, Bill Hybels, in his book. He says, the counterfeit piece of inauthentic relationships always deteriorates into relational death. If you were to read Scott Peck's book, you would see he talks about uh, two mountain peaks, one a very low mountain and the other a high-range mountain peak. He talks about the low peak being a, a, uh, a pseudo-relationship. The upper peak being that which is really an authentic relationship. This would be the type diagram. Uh, I wish maybe this uh, particular uh, mountain were a little bit smaller to give you the more contrast. But here we are at the, uh, the peak of pseudo-relationship. And Peck says, we want to get up here to authentic relationship, but the leap is too grand. We can't make it. It's not going to happen naturally. There's only one way to get there, and it's going down into what he calls the valley of chaos. Well put, the valley of chaos. What happens is when we start entering into the valley of chaos, I'll tell you that pseudo, that pseudo relationship smells pretty good. All of a sudden we say, just give me peace. I don't care. Just give me peace. But the truth is we have to get there. We have to go in to that valley. I know, I know with uh, Carol and uh, with me, that's been our experience. Experiences, it's so easy to avoid and say, you know what, we're at peace now. We're not interacting on negative things that hurt our feelings and so forth, but we know something's missing and one or the other has to say, okay, we need to go down into the valley of chaos and it's always worthwhile when you come out. Can I give a little counsel? My counsel would be this. Some of us right now know with whom we're in a pseudo relationship. And some of them, it's our spouses. Some of us, it's just our spouse. Maybe it's our children. Don't know who it might be. But you know if it would be appropriate and wise and right to go down into that valley of chaos. Let me encourage you to do it if you need to do it. And number two, if somebody comes to you in the effort to do so, don't be critical and don't avoid and don't push back and don't retaliate. What you want to do is listen 
and evaluate. Maybe there's some truthfulness to what they're saying. Maybe there's a great relationship waiting. Let me tell you, you don't, you don't risk that kind of relationship until you've been in an environment where you know it's safe. That's biblical community. I will say this. I think there are certain occasions... There are certain occasions where perhaps we don't go into the valley of chaos, though we're in pseudo-relationship. The Bible says, and I want to be careful in saying this because I think it would be very easy to start just capturing this as our reason not to go into the valley. Oh, but the scriptures do say that it is better to rob a mother bear of her cubs, which, by the way, is not a smart thing to do. It says it's better to do that than to rebuke a fool in their folly. And there would be certain people you say, I'm absolutely thoroughly convinced it's not the right thing to do because this is going nowhere with this person for sure. But if there is thought that it might work, it's worth the risk to get to authentic relationships, okay? There is a cost. There are wonderful benefits, but we don't want to live life outside of biblical community, okay? Now, I want to spend our last minutes here together talking about community and communion. Community and communion. I want to start by asking three questions. Here are the three questions. First one would be, why does the Bible say so much about fellowship and community? I wonder why. I mean... I don't know the number. I heard it this week. Uh, a friend of mine here in the church told me the number, uh, but it's extensive. I went through 30 or 40 of them yesterday or last week, uh, walking through the one another's in Scripture. Th- those are all issues about sharing one with the other. That's what biblical fellowship is. And the truth is that this whole idea of, of biblical community is big on God's mind for us. Why does he talk about it so much? Here's the answer. Because we, his people, we are family. And family is to be community. We're not just an institution. We're not just an organization, a gathering of event. No, we're a family. So the second question is, what do families do together? Well, families do a lot of things together. Our family chose to all gather together on Friday evening at our home. And we have four children and their spouses and uh, 10 grandchildren. And so we got a lot of people making up this little family. So we said, let's get the family together. Now, when we made the invitation, you know, we didn't say, let's come over and have a work day. Let's just work around the house all together. We didn't do that. There was some work being done in cleanup, I will assure you. We didn't say, hey, come, let's play together. There was a lot of playing, particularly among the kids. There was playing going around. We didn't do that. We didn't even say, hey, let's get together and and let's talk. We're getting together for the evening just to talk. In fact, there was no way the adults could talk in that particular group. (laughs) But none of those things. Now, we did talk, and there was play, and there was some work. But those aren't the things we talked about when we said, why do we get together? We said, let's get together to what? To eat, of course. You get together to eat. Family eats together. <laughs> it's a new concept for some of us, isn't it? Yeah, in our homes this day and age. But, the, but the, that's when the family can really be together. 
which raises a third question. God gave his church a meal to take together regularly, and we call it communion. Why is it called communion? It's very interesting. The word in the Bible for fellowship is koinonia. Koinonia. It means sharing. It actually carries a, a couple of, of ideas. It can actually be translated, if you look it up in a, in a Bible dictionary, you know what you're going to find out? You're going to find out it means fellowship and it means communion. And we choose the word communion to describe the breaking of bread. You remember the four activities of the early church? Oh, the first, the apostles' teaching, the last prayer. But the second one and the third one, interesting, are both expressions of koinonia. The first translated by the word koinonia, and that is believers sharing together, having communion one to the other. But the next, we use the word communion to describe the breaking of bread or the Lord's table, communion as we call it. And that's where we come together for this meal with God. Christians coming together in the presence of God to take a meal with him. Very interesting. Let me give you a definition of the word communion. If you look it up, it says, the Lord uniting Christians as individuals with each other, and then it says, and with Jesus Christ. Now, in the Apostles' Creed, many of you are familiar with it. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and so forth. And then when it says, and we believe, it's stating the beliefs that the church has, we believe in the holy Catholic or literally universal church. And then it says, and the communion of saints. We believe in the communion of saints. What in the world? Well, let's look up the definition of communion of saints. This is what we find. The relationship that exists between Christians, but it doesn't just say that. It says, made by their link to Christ. Very important. Here is the point that I'm trying to make. Fellowship with each other, koinonia with each other, is possible because of union with Christ. You hear that? It is possible because of union with Christ. And unless we understand union with Christ, we don't really understand fellowship. Well, what's the table all about? The table is to help us understand our union with Christ. Now, so that we will be able to understand things like our union with each other. This is the heart and soul of the whole story right here. This is a picture that we're going to take. We're going to take the picture and we're going to stare at it. Many of you have heard me many times share the stories of the loved ones that you look at that picture of somebody that you have lost and loved so much and you see their picture and it does something to your heart. Picture says more than a thousand words, doesn't it? What he's saying is this. I'm going to give you a picture here and it'll break your heart because it'll tell you truth that is so amazing. It'll break your heart in love with him. That's what it does. So I'd like to conclude by three insights about the table, just so that when we take it in just a minute, this is going to be special. Number one of three insights. 
This picture can only be clearly understood when viewed within the historic setting of the Passover. All right, so the Passover. I'm amazed the number of men that I'm meeting with over lunch when I say, are you familiar with the Passover? Do you know the stories of, of uh, the Exodus and so forth? That Most now are not. Uh, most don't know the scriptures, and therefore I have the privilege of telling the great story. And every time I tell it, it just, again, I revisit the great truth of the gospel in the story of the Passover. You know the story, many of you do. But for you that don't, and a reminder to you that do, remember Pharaoh had taken the people of Israel and he had them in, captive, in captivity. God says to Moses, you go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, uh-uh, not doing it. So that's where the plagues come in. Many of you are familiar with the plagues of God, the 10 plagues. Well, nine plagues don't succeed. Number 10 comes. God says, all right, you go tell Pharaoh that if he doesn't let you go, then the firstborn of all the people there, all the people, the firstborn male will die. Death angel will come visit, and that firstborn will die. He says, yeah, right. He doesn't do it. And you know the story, all the firstborn die. But for the Israelites, God said, here's what we're going to do. I want you to have a meal together. Your family come together. I want you to have a meal. I want you to take a little lamb, and it's got to be a special lamb. It's got to be a male without blemish. That takes you to the story of the good news of Christ, does it not? A male without blemish. Don't you get one of these little lambs that has, you know, three legs or is losing, lost an eye, or bites all the time? Don't you, don't you get that one? You get the one that's going to bring the greatest breaking of the heart of the kids and you as the adults as well to see that little lamb slain because it's going to be slain because of what you've done so I want you to take the lamb and I I want you to to slay it literally cut the jugular let the blood flow into a bowl and then you as a family confess your sins before the Lord and the picture is that the lamb will take your sin because without the shedding of blood there's no forgiveness of sins Leviticus 17 says so if there's got to be the shedding of blood, okay, let the blood be shed by the lamb instead of by us. Sins are confessed. The hands are put in the bowl. They wash with that blood. They rinse off the blood. And the idea is the lamb took our sin. Did the lamb take the sin? No, the lamb didn't take the sin. And they knew that. But it was a picture of a lamb to come. And so when Jesus sees or John the Baptist sees Jesus, he says, ah, behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the earth. There's the real Lamb. Well, God told Moses, now, take some of that blood now, and you just put it on the overhead post, the lintel on the side post, just make sure that there's blood around the door of your home, because that's going to mean that you're covered by the blood of the Lamb, and you don't die. That's the story of the great news that we call the gospel. It's right there. I like the way, I like the way Danny said in our closing last service, said, you know, this is true. You go down in the, Jesus went down in the chaos, didn't he? He went down in the chaos so that we can have authentic relationship. When we think we have relationship with God, but we don't, it's pseudo. That is the great story of what happens. So I want you to remember three words. As we're going to take the table, I want to just give you some words to help kind of hold your thoughts as you're taking the table. And here are the three words. The first is the word redemption. 
It was through what he did on the cross that gives us our redemption, the blood that covers us. It redeems us. It pays for us. Release. Just as the Israelites were released from bondage, we're released from our sin. Remembrance. Now we take the table, and the table is going to be a perpetual remembrance for all of us. Here's the way it's said in Scripture. To give it in the 12th chapter of Exodus. Verse 14, now this day will be a memorial to you, and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. Listen to that, permanent. And at the end, this is in verse 41, at the end of 430 years to the very day, all the host of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. You go to the 13th chapter, and you see there it says in verse 3, Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you went out from Egypt. From the house of slavery, for by a powerful hand the Lord brought you out from this place, and nothing leavened shall be eaten. And there's the story. Now, the story, obviously, redemption, release, and remembrance, okay? Now, number two, insight. Christ intended that the updated picture left, that is left to us, would serve as both a remembrance and a proclamation. There's something added. You see, the story is now going to be updated. In the upper room, what you're going to see Jesus do is say, hey, guys, come together here. We're going to have our Passover meal. And then things changed a little bit. There's no blood. There's no lamb. Where's the lamb? Where's the blood? What's what's going on? Well, you don't need that anymore because now he's going to be the lamb. He's going to pay his own blood cost so that we might have authentic relationship with him. See, it's, a, it's an updated story. In the past, all these dead animals and all this blood, and now he says, it's all about me now. I am the lamb. Here's how we're told to observe it in 1 Corinthians 11. It's starting in verse 23. For I received from the Lord, this is the apostle Paul, That which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Still a meal, but now no blood. You see, all this is about faith. When we come to this table, this is a faith exercise. Symbols are used to enhance faith, an existing faith. But there is a grace given through this. This is called a means of grace. And so we are able to see something happen to our faith. Here's the way I put it in the statement. The table is the proclamation of God's word in picture form, designed like the Bible, to be a means of grace. Why? To enhance one's faith. This is screaming to us. The table should scream to us these messages. It's to scream to us, life and new life has been given to you. And new life is yet to come. Now on this earth, greater and greater life and eventually in heaven. I sat here and took the table at the 9 o'clock hour and I just thought about, I'm going to heaven. I'll never perish I get new life in full. There there can't be anything better than life with your Savior forever, true life. Mm. Can't get any better. You see, what the table is saying 
is it's a remembrance. A remembrance of what? We've been crucified with Christ. We've been united with Christ. But it's a proclamation. It's a proclamation that we will be sustained by Christ as well. So number three, we look at the third and final, and that is the picture was left with a warning of specific consequences for abusing the table. And the way he puts it to us is in the 27th and 29th verses. We read, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. And then 29, it says, For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. So what he's telling us to do is to first examine ourselves and then to judge ourselves. So the last two verses I read, verses 28 and 31 go like this. But a man must examine himself. There it is. You examine yourself, and in so doing, he is is to eat the bread and drink the cup. Now, examining simply means this. It means that what we're to do is we are to begin to look at our sin, be honest, repent, obey, and follow. That's what he said. That's what it means. Now, let's look at verse 31. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. Now, this is a different word. The idea of judging means to, uh, to literally um, uh, distinguish between what is and what should be. And so they're very similar, related. But the idea is evaluate yourself to see where you are, judge yourself rightly, and deal with what needs to be dealt with. Now, it's time to come to the table. I want you to know before I pray that this is going to be a transrational meal. Trans goes beyond rational. It's not irrational. It just goes beyond rational. Why? Because in what we do, grace is going to be bestowed on you. That's an issue of trust that he does. If we come to the table correctly... He says, grace is given. If we come to the table correctly and grace is given, faith is enhanced. That's what can happen right here. This is not just a physical exercise. God does something among his people when we come to the table rightly. I like to think of this way. What we're going to do is we're going to set the sails. Uh, God determines the blowing of the wind. We don't. And his spirit's going to blow in such a way that he may move one of us one direction, another a different direction. For some of us, it could be a very emotional time. For others, it may be non-emotional, but just as real. But all we do, we we don't handle the blowing of the wind. We just raise the sail. And that's when we say, yes, God. Yes, God. And what I'd like to encourage us to do today is as we raise the sails and say, yes, God, I want us to all say yes to authentic relationships and our pursuit to find them if we need them and don't have them. We're going to need faith to do that. We need faith to trust God that even in our world that seems like who would ever come close to me, that God would have the right people prepared, that he's going to give you strength, sustaining strength to be able to pursue the friendships because it won't be easy. We have to pursue those friendships, and there's a cost, as we've said, just to go after it. I love what it says in Luke 22. Luke 22, Jesus says, 
He longs to take the table with us. How about that? Not with angels and not with the saints that are dead, but with you and me. He longs to take the table. I'm going to pray now. I'm going to ask God that he would cleanse our hearts and that we might come to the table well. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we, we bow now and we're going to ask you if you would to do a special work in our hearts right now. Any skepticism of the use of symbols? Any questioning of your presence because of past circumstances and hardships? Doubting of your love? Would you just allow us to be rid of those things that would hinder us from faith right now and the grace that comes by coming to the table rightly? Lord, for some of us that are tempted not to come to the table because we struggle, show us our hearts, Lord, and if a desire to surrender is there, Lord, use the table to grant us the ability. Father, give us strength and wisdom if not willing to surrender, to just stay away from the table. But God, use it in our lives nonetheless. Give us a longing to be back at the table. I pray for those outside a relationship with you. Would you grant that there would be a, a new birth here and there across this auditorium of people who say, I see the cross and what you've done, and I want that blood covering over the doorpost of my life. God, grant it. May we have a special time as we remember these three words, as we think about what you've done as a remembrance. Oh, God, just bring us to our, to our knees in a sense that we would say, God, you just blow. I'm willing to go wherever you say. Lord, grant us the relationships that we're asking for. Hear our prayers even now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day. Thank you.